This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Dr. Peter Bletcher speaks about medicinal cannabis in the workplace. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Peter to the stage. I am going to curtail my own remarks and uh, let the industry speak for itself as it emerges from the politics and the ignorance and the stigma of the past. Uh, We've gathered a selection of dreamers and uh, schemers and doers, each with their own proposed piece of the puzzle and each of them with their eye on the prize. In the cluster, we're going to offer you two doctors, one concerned with the practicalities of marijuana in the workplace. So, Dr. Bletcher, are you ready? Yes, the first of our two doctors. Come on out here. Let me tell you what a cannabis user looks like to me. A good friend of mine has a mother who lives in a nursing home. Some time ago, he reached out to me and told me that she had started screaming. It's now almost nonstop, night and day, 24 hours. It's incredibly distressing to her caregivers, to his family, and to the doctors that are looking after her care. Their solution is to just increase all her medications. They've upped her sedatives, they've added antidepressants, they've added now strong opiates, and they've added, most recently, antipsychotics. It's done nothing for her screaming, and in fact, it's made her worse, because now she's so sedated and delirious that she's not recognizing her family. So my friend asked me if I thought perhaps cannabis might help her. I signed her up for a license, I made him the caregiver, and a few days later, he calls me back. He says, Peter, you won't believe what happened. A few hours after giving my mom that first dose of oil, she stopped screaming. It settled down. In fact, he called me a few weeks later in follow-up and said that process had continued. So much so that they had now been able to wean her off much of her sedating medication that was patently making her worse. And she was now recognizing family. She was smiling. Just a great story, right? But here's the crazy part. The nursing home is refusing to give her the medicine that's helping her. They're more than willing to give her the heavy, sedating medicines that factually made her worse. The cannabis oil has to be locked in a box by her bed, and only the family can access that. They have to come and see her several times a day, taking turns to give her the medicine. The nursing home is essentially denying her access to the medicine that's helping her. That's what a cannabis user looks like to me. My name is Peter Bletcher. I'm a medical director at CPM Center for Pain Management and chief medical officer of Starseed Medicinal. Thank you for coming out and hearing me talk today at Idea City. 
Even just five years ago, the chance of a friend of mine, a Bay Street executive, calling me up and essentially asking me to procure medical weed for his mom would have been essentially unthinkable just from the social stigma alone. But now I have a practice filled with grandmothers, police officers, accountants, laborers, school teachers, all of whom are benefiting from medical cannabis. And the thing is, almost none of them had tried it before. These are not recreational users. They're not looking to become intoxicated. They're looking to get better. Today, I'm going to tell you about my experience on the front line of the opiate epidemic and now how that has helped shape and change my view of cannabis. If there's one overarching message I want to get across to you all here today is we need to stop conflating the recreational use of this plant with its long-observed medicinal benefits. If insurers, employers, my fellow Physicians and all of you here today fail to see that distinction. You will miss out on a potentially life-changing and life-saving opportunities that this plant can afford. We are indeed on the front edge of a cannabis revolution. But this is not just a revolution about pot or weed or whatever slang term you want to apply. It's also a medical revolution. Medical cannabis is changing the way we're managing pain, helping get people off opiates, and helping patients manage a variety of symptoms. I'm a 25-year veteran emergency physician working in busy ERs in the urban environment. I've seen a lot in my time. You have to understand that almost every patient who comes to the ER does so with undifferentiated pain. It's our role to choose the right investigations and tests to hopefully ultimately come to a correct diagnosis. But notwithstanding us making the right diagnosis, hopefully most of the time, many times patients are discharged back into the community still in pain. Chronic pain is a big thing. It's sometimes referred to as a silent epidemic. One in five Canadians, 20%, that's millions of people, suffer from chronic pain. And it's this understanding and recognition that led me about 15 years ago to decide that I wanted to help people manage chronic pain as well. In the type of clinic where I work, we use a number of modalities to help these patients. Things like nerve blocks, infusion treatments, Botox for spasticity or migraine, patient self-directed techniques like CBT or um, mindfulness. And we also use pharmacotherapy when needed that might include opiates for limited periods of time now. Of course, opiates, they changed medicine. They changed the way we manage trauma in the field, do procedures, do surgeries. They work great for acute pain, but something changed in the late 90s, early 2000s, when suddenly we, physicians, were being told by manufacturers that now they were safe for chronic pain as well. This was different. So many of us, with the best of intentions, started prescribing these more liberally. Most of us, I would say. And in fact, things looked good in the beginning. Patients got better. Their pain went down. Their quality of life went up. Their families felt better. We felt better. But what happened is over time, we started noticing, even with increasing doses, because they were developing tolerance, not only did their pain not continue to resolve, it actually got worse, paradoxically. It had an opposing effect. Some of us began thinking that perhaps we didn't know enough about the long-term effect of opiates. But of course, at that time, the horse was out of the barn. The opiate crisis was upon us, and my goodness, absolutely tragic and incredible. The statistics are staggering. So much so that the Ontario and Canadian Medical Associations both have been aggressively lobbying physicians now for the past several years to curb and significantly reduce their opiate prescribing. And here's how well that's been working out. Not at all, horribly. For the last two years that we have complete data, comparing 2016 to 17, opiate deaths went up, again, by almost half. Accidents are no longer the leading cause of death in those under 50. Drug overdoses. 
The opiate epidemic is costing billions of dollars and it's killing tens of thousands of our youth in North America. So it was on the back of this that I realized that I had to do something different. I had to look at this differently. I'd had patients come to me on ad hoc basis and drips and drabs telling me they were using cannabis to manage their pain. Some had gotten off opiates, some had reduced their opiate use, others had never even used opiates. I started conservatively using synthetic cannabinoids at first on some of my most challenging patients and I saw that I was able to reduce their opiate use. Some of them I got off completely as I got more comfortable, learned more, I got more confident in prescribing licenses for whole plant extracts, mostly oils, but for some also vaporizing dried flour. It's very important to acknowledge that this has always been a patient-led initiative. And this is part of the reason that so many of my colleagues are very reluctant to embrace it because doctors do not like to be told what to do and least of all, we don't like to be told what to do by patients. But there's no question that it's this collective advocacy that has led us to the point where we now truly are on a scientific and medical frontier. Do we need more data? Well, of course we do. We need more robust trials. We need to better understand the impact of medical cannabis. We need better delivery mechanisms so we can better understand potency and dosing. And we need for the media and my medical colleagues to stop conflating medical and recreational use. We have to understand that not all cannabis will get you high. Cannabis contains cannabinoids. Those are the active ingredients. They work on receptors in our brains and our body. The two most important medically ones are THC, which can get you high, and CBD, which will not. We also make cannabinoid receptors in our body, and we make cannabinoids. We call those endocannabinoids, the ones we, they act on the same receptors in the plants. So is cannabis safe? Let me throw this stat at you. It would take 1,500 pounds of cannabis to be smoked in 15 minutes to induce a lethal dose. 1,500 pounds. I suspect that's a challenge that might even overwhelm Snoop Dogg or Seth Rogen, but uh, <laughs> I'm equally confident they'd be more than willing to accept the challenge. Coming up after the break. Medical patients, true medical patients, are doing the opposite. They're using as little as they need to to manage their symptoms with the specific endpoint of not wanting to become intoxicated. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Dr. Peter Fletcher speak about medicinal cannabis in the workplace. We have never seen an actual cannabis overdose death. It's never been reported in the medical literature. Now, let me be abundantly clear. You can absolutely become acutely intoxicated on cannabis, and you will lose judgment, you will lose mentation, cognitive function, and you will lose coordination. And if you're engaged in a dangerous activity, like driving a car while high, you can get seriously injured or kill yourself. But you can abuse or become addicted to virtually any drug. Take Gravol, Benadryl, and Tylenol. I've seen overdose deaths from all of those in my years. Every busy urban ER sees that. We sell those in corner stores. We sell them to minors. Should we ban those drugs? Well, of course not. Those are great drugs when used appropriately for the conditions they're indicated in the way they're supposed to be used. I believe that medical cannabis as well, when used appropriately in a medically supervised program, can help patients manage a number of symptoms and ailments. Overwhelmingly, those patients who experience bad reactions with cannabis, such as addiction or significant side effects, are specifically using it in order to achieve intoxication. Every time they use cannabis, they are using as much as they need to to become intoxicated. That's their end point. 
Medical patients, true medical patients, are doing the opposite. They're using as little as they need to to manage their symptoms with the specific endpoint of not wanting to become intoxicated. That's very different. Perhaps the one area where we've shown most strong evidence of efficacy for cannabis is in its opiate-sparing effects. Just last month, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, published data that now unequivocally shows that in every US jurisdiction, every state where there's a medical legal framework in place, opiate use and prescribing has gone down. Every state. To the tune of two million annualized prescriptions. If this was to become a national phenomenon, it's felt that this would translate into a drug expenditure of four and a half billion dollars. These are significant big data numbers and it shows that we're moving in the right direction. I would now like to take just a few minutes and tell you how it is I came to become involved with a medical cannabis company that had a very unique business case. The name of that company, of which I'm also one of the founders, is called Starseed Medicinal. Starseed is the first and only medical cannabis company to have as its strategic partner a major construction union and its insurers who together have agreed to put medical cannabis on the benefit plan and provide it for all of its members as a, health, as a covered health benefit. The name of that union is called LIUNA, or Labor's International Union of North America. LIUNA is the largest construction union in Canada with over 120,000 members. As you can well imagine, due to the nature of the work in construction, they over-index for chronic pain and as a consequence for opiate use as well and all that that entails. This is not about construction workers getting stoned. This is about helping all injured workers find relief, reduce their dependency on opiates, improve their quality of life, and suppress addiction. As a consequence of the work that I'm now doing with Layuna and Starseed, I get invited a lot to speak to large employer groups, insurers, plan sponsors, to talk about medical cannabis in the workplace. And the first thing they always ask me is, well, what are we going to do if we put medical cannabis on our benefit plan and someone shows up stoned? It's a very good question, and I answer it usually with another question. What are you doing right now if someone shows up drunk? I would handle it exactly the same way. What are you doing right now with the accountant who's crushing Percocets on his desk and snorting them? Percocets that are covered right now on all of your benefit plans. This is about using CBD-predominant formulations that patently have now demonstrated to suppress and divert the use of these drugs that are just so much more sedating and they're tacitly approved for daytime use because they're on the drug plans. THC predominant formula should be reserved for nighttime, evening, after hours work. Remember the, the stats I told you from the US and my friend's mother. We can see how this is working. If we're going to have an honest conversation about workplace safety, drug use at work, and pain management, let's at least park the hypocrisy and have an honest, balanced conversation. So what does the future hold? As we all heard, we're now going to be legalizing the adult use recreational market on October 17th. And I think that's good. It's going to help remove the stigma from medical cannabis and separate it out to be its own thing, as I said we needed to do. But let's be very clear that the future of cannabis as medicine lies in the insights that we're going to gain from further research and discovery. Some companies are developing tamper-resistant devices with cloud-based control that allows physician to deliver microdosing, even of THC, yes, THC, that improves alertness and cognitive function because it's reducing pain and anxiety and inflammation, and it's virtually impossible to become intoxicated. Other companies 
are looking at discoveries and new advances in neuroscience to look at our endocannabinoid system and using CBD to help manage things like concussion, CTE, and even Alzheimer's disease. So if I can leave you with this one final thought today, it's this. While the pending legalization of the adult recreational market is grabbing plenty of headlines, let's not forget about the millions of pain patients and sufferers who could benefit from medical cannabis and help suppress the opiate crisis and divert opiates in Canada. Patients are not looking to get high, they're looking to get well. Thank you. That was excellent, Peter. Thanks, Moses. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on this question of euphoria. Until this moment, and for the period of time between the moment when the Supreme Court of Canada legalized medical marijuana, and today one could characterize the situation in Canada this way. If you were in serious pain and you could prove that none of the usual pharmaceutical-based drugs worked for you or that they had very deleterious knock-on effects, with great reluctance, right. the government of Canada would allow you to have medical marijuana. But if, God forbid, you should enjoy yourself, <laughs> they threw you in jail. And my question is this, if you're in intractable pain, if you're on your way to dying, if you're suffering from cancer, and if there is this thing which can take your mind away for even a half hour, why would we begrudge that? Isn't in that circumstance euphoria part of a cure? I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about, in that scenario, we're talking about comfort care. And I think, I mean, and let's be very clear, I have no judgment on recreational use of cannabis either. I just think, as I said, we, we shouldn't be conflating it with the medical use of cannabis to manage symptoms for people that are trying to have active lives and be at work. Because there's this constant issue now about the fear of everyone showing up stoned at work, but yet I know, because I've seen it firsthand, the abuse of opiates in the workplace. I think that using cannabis in palliative care, much like we use opiates in palliative care, there, there's no issue with that. And I think that those are obviously humane things to do. And I also think recreational cannabis has a, has a place. And let's push on with this exciting frontier of cannabinoids in medicine, which is what Starseed is engaged in. That's our focus. Good work. Thank, thank you so thank much. Thank you very much for your talk. I don't know how many of you are aware, but there was this incident recently um, where uh, Veteran Affairs Department um, arbitrarily cut back on the amount of marijuana that certain uh, of our soldiers, our veterans who had come back from the wars and were suffering from PTSD and had begun to consume cannabis as a way of dealing with their situation. And uh, what had happened is that over the course of a number of years, the amount of cannabis that was being used and the uh, cost of that cannabis was beginning to increase quite considerably. And some bureaucrat in Ottawa decided that 10 grams uh, per day, which I think is what the average was, was too much and arbitrarily cut it back to 
three grams a day, even though all of these veterans kept saying, this is what I need to contain my situation. And in fact, one uh, grew so despondent that he committed suicide. And, uh, and it's pretty clear that uh, while the excuse given was that it was a financial uh, motivation that drove the cutback, um, there, there is the lingering suspicion that people in the bureaucracy were concerned that these soldiers might, God forbid, be enjoying themselves. And what the bureaucrats for, uh, got excuse me, to, uh, to mention and, and apparently didn't even notice is that as the cost of the marijuana treatment for these soldiers went up, their use of opioids went down, and in fact, the two numbers almost perfectly matched. So. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.